Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. Well, if you've been journeying, uh, journeying with us through the Gospel of John, uh, what you've seen is kind of three major movements. Uh, we've kind of said this from the beginning, that the Gospel of John has these three major movements of Jesus in his public ministry in chapters 1 through 12, and then his private ministry in chapters 13 through 17, and then his passion ministry in chapters 18 to 21. And in each one of those movements, we're meant to really just see one thing, and that's Jesus for who he is and what he's done for us. And so this morning we're in chapter 12, meaning that we're at the end of his public ministry, that throughout Jesus' life, up until that Passion Week, we've seen Jesus do some pretty incredible things. And John chapter 20 would tell us that he's doing all of these things so that we would believe in him. And by believing in him, we would find life and life abundantly in his name. And not just eternal life, but life now in the present. And so let's think about some of the things that Jesus has done so far on the journey. So far, what we've seen him do is he's turned water into wine. We've seen him heal people. We've seen him feed thousands of people with like a kid's lunchable, right? We've seen him walk on water. We've seen him even raise the dead. And all of these things, we're not meant to celebrate the sign that he's doing, but those signs are meant to celebrate the person and the work and the majesty and the glorious nature of our God and our King, Jesus. And so all of these moments are positioning us to encounter him as we see him for who he is and what he's done. And every single thing that he's doing, he's showing us a reality that he is ushering in what's called the kingdom of God. And that kingdom would be marked by joy, by love, by peace, that there is coming a day where he will wipe away every tear. He will make all things new. And at the center of all of this, he's not just ushering in a kingdom, but he's declaring that he himself is that king that our hearts long for and our hearts need. All of us will orient our lives under someone or something. We will position ourselves to listen to someone and it'll determine and dictate our lives. And Jesus is ushering in with all joy and all love and all goodness. And he says, come to me, because I'm your true king. I'm the king your heart really longs for. And the very last thing Jesus does in his public ministry in chapter 12 is declare fully and emphatically and finally that he is this king. Every single thing that he's been doing up until this moment is declaring it. And in John chapter 12, he's declaring it fully because Jesus knows that when we see Jesus for who he truly is, it transforms who we truly are. That to see Jesus and to behold Jesus and to encounter Jesus leaves an impact on our lives and we are never the same because of it. And so what we think about when we think about Jesus is the most important thing about us. That's what John is trying to communicate to us. And all of us have these kind of false views of Jesus in our minds, our uh, ideas about Jesus that we kind of lean into and we kind of ignore the rest. And so once more, just think about this for a moment. What words come to your mind when you think about Jesus? What characteristics? What attributes? What stories? 
It was fun this past week, I got to ask our staff that question and they submitted over a hundred different characteristics about who Jesus is. And I put it together in this word cloud, that's this. That I simply just asked the question, hey, as you've been reading John up until chapter 12, who is Jesus? And they said words like shepherd, compassionate, patient, kind, flesh, strong, forgiving, human, resurrection, piercing. I love that word, that Jesus is piercing. He's healer, he's provider, he's loving, he's hope, he's engaged, he's glorious, he's abiding, he's human, he's the word made flesh, he's warrior, he's gentle, he's the lamb of God, he's thoughtful, he's pursuer. There's over a hundred words represented here just with a simple question, what do you think about when you think about Jesus? And so City Bridge, what do you think about when you think about Jesus? Because when we see Jesus for who he truly is, this mosaic of this beautiful reality of the God of the universe become man on our behalf, it changes who we really are. And something that has struck me over this last couple of weeks as I've been thinking about this and specifically this last week as I got to just engage with this, as I begin to ask myself the question, if this is who Jesus is, then shouldn't this be who I am? Like outside of the words like God and Messiah and Savior and Lord, like take those out. If Jesus is truly my king, if I'm really saying that I'm going to orient my life under this king Jesus, then shouldn't I begin to look like that king and walk like that king and love like that king? And I thought about that. I thought about it for my own sake. And as I looked at these, some of these words, I go, man, some of these, by the grace of God, God has grown me in over the years. And there's other things that even I look back on this past week. I go, man, if someone was following me, they would not write that word. And so what is it for you? If someone was following you around for the week, do you look like our King Jesus? Because if the answer is no, we have to ask ourselves a hard question but a very piercing question of what king are you really serving? Because as I heard it said recently, you become what you behold. And if you're beholding King Jesus, he has a tendency and a pattern of transforming. But if you're beholding the things of this world, you shouldn't be surprised that you're marked by that that you're not marked by a love, a peace, a patience, a kindness, a goodness, a gentleness, a self-control, but you're marked by an anger, an anxiety, a fear, an insecurity, a pride, a lust. When we come under the rule of King Jesus in our life, it radically transforms us because when we see him for who he truly is, it changes who we truly are. And that is everything that John is trying to present to us. Throughout the first 12 chapters of John, that's what he's showing us. And here in chapter 12, it culminates because Jesus is about to declare a reality that he is the king of the world. And he's inviting us to yield our lives to him so that he could be the king of your world. And when we do that, it makes all the difference. And so I don't know about you, but when I open up my Bible, John chapter 12 has seven different headings in it. 
And uh, that's a lot. Those are different stories, different movements. And as we've been moving through this series in John, we're doing it at a, at a healthy pace. And we've actually really enjoyed that because we get to kind of see this mosaic of Jesus kind of playing out. And, and as we look at the overarching movements, we get to see the beauty of it. And we're gonna do that in chapter 12, that we're gonna see, not dive in deeply to any singular moment, but we're gonna see this mosaic of Jesus playing out of who he is and what he's done. And we're gonna see that everything he's doing and everything he's talking about is presenting him as the king of the world, yes, but he's inviting you that he wants to be the king of your world. And if we're in here and declaring, hey, Jesus is my king, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my Messiah, he is my God, I do believe in him, then we're gonna see in this passage what this king deserves from us. And we're gonna see what he declares over us. And then finally, we're gonna see what this king does for us. And so let's get going and let's look at this king. This king deserves something from us. And that's what we're gonna look at first. John chapter 12 begins on the heels of John chapter 11. It's funny how your Bible does that. Um, but chapter 12 comes after chapter 11. And in chapter 11, what we saw was Jesus go and do the miraculous. He took someone who was literally dead, made them alive. And now Jesus is sitting at a dinner with those people, with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, the one that he raised from the dead. And these individuals have seen Jesus. They've seen him high and lifted up, shining in the light of his glory. And all they want to say to him is, holy, holy, holy are you. There is a life that's marked by a deep belief and trust in Jesus. And they are never the same. And that's where we enter into our story in John chapter 12. It says this, verse one. It says, now six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus, you know, that guy who had died and he raised from the dead where he was. And so they gave him a dinner there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of the ones reclining at the table. I just want to pause here and just marvel at this. Like what Martha and Lazarus are both doing is what's most natural for them in a response of worship to Jesus. Like every time we see Martha, she's actively serving. She's moving around. She's responding to the grace of God that she sees in her life. And then the last time we saw Lazarus, he was reclining <laughs> for four days. But it's zooming in on this moment to show us he was reclining, surrounded by death, and now he's reclining next to the author of life. And I want you to put yourself not in the position of Martha or Lazarus, but in this story, put yourself in the position of Mary. Like she is literally looking at this scene unfold and she sees her family united together and she sees Jesus at the very center of it. And I know that's what all of us really long for. Like I know my wife and I pray every single night that Judah, our son, would come to know the goodness and grace and kindness and gospel of Jesus the Christ. That we would be united as a family, yes, but Jesus would always be the sinner. And Mary in this moment, she sees this and she does what is natural in her to respond to Jesus. It says in verse three, it says, now Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. What I love about Mary here is she is a picture of full devotion to God. And in fact, every single time we see Mary, if you wanna do a kind of a little Bible trivia, every time we see Mary, she is literally sitting at the feet of Jesus, like the camera zooms in on her, and she's always at the feet of Jesus. 
The first time we see her, Jesus is teaching a small group and she is right there sitting at his feet. Later on, when a hardship happens in her life and and Lazarus, her brother who she loved has died, she comes to Jesus and it says she falls at her feet, falls at his feet and just weeps in front of him. And then here, having seen the good and the sweet moments of life and having experienced the struggles of life and seeing that Jesus was always there and constant through it. She's looking at this and what does she do? She falls at his feet and worships him. This is not begrudging obedience. This is a response of known love. This right here is a life marked by gratitude to the one who's changed her life. And as we've read through the gospel of John, like this is just what we see over and over and over again. We see people having this encounter with Jesus and then they're like, lives are never the same. And so in chapter one, you see Jesus going in and calling the disciples and they come and they see him for who he is and what he's done. And all of a sudden they're willing to leave everything of their life and go and go. And I'm following that guy because that's where true life and abundance is found. In chapter four, you see Jesus engage and encounter this woman at a well in which her life is marked by this brokenness and this shame and this sexual sin in her life. And all of a sudden she has this encounter with Jesus and this woman who is marked by this shame is now marked by her savior. And she goes and shares that. We see those that were crippled now walking, going, my first steps were towards Jesus. Those that are blind now see, going, I'm looking at Jesus. And then if you read with us this past week through chapter 12 of John, you see like everyone that was there seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, they can't stop talking about it. Like Jesus has done something miraculous in their life and they just can't keep their mouths shut. And so City Bridge, The question we got to wrestle with is, are we seeing that in our own lives? Because when we see Jesus for who he truly is, it should change us. When we're changed, we ought to change. And so do you know what Jesus has done for you? Do you know how kind he is? How compassionate? How loving and how graceful? gracious. Do you know how near he is to you? So when we walk in that reality, we will walk out what it means in John 15 to abide in me, rest in me, remain in my love for you. And it'll have a radical impact in your life. And so the question for us is if we see Jesus for who he is, then what's our response? Maybe it's like Martha who just goes, man, how am I wired and how am I gifted and and how can I use that to serve and I bless others? And maybe that is serving. Maybe that's opening up your home for hospitality. Maybe that's jumping into a merge or or, or money-wise or or something going, hey, I'm gonna use the way that I've been gifted and wired by God as as an expression and as a joy to serve others in the name of God. Or maybe for you, it's like Lazarus and going, man, how can I kind of block off time to literally just linger and be with Jesus? Or maybe I think for all of us, it's like Mary. You see the posture of the Christian 
is yes, an activity of service and yes, an activity of lingering with Jesus, but the posture of the Christian should always be that I am just at the feet of Jesus and I'm bringing everything I have to him. I'm bringing him my best. I'm bringing him the joys I have in my life and I'm celebrating knowing that he's the author of that. But then I'm also bringing my struggles, my insecurities, my fears, my doubts. There's things in my life that I kind of, revert back to when I'm not living in the kingdom of God, that we would bring everything to Jesus and be marked by individuals and be marked as individuals that are never the same as we bring everything to him. And so City Bridge, what do you need to leave at Jesus's feet? I remember hearing that a lot whenever I was, you know, middle school, high school, college. And, and it always felt like, I, I was like, I, I know what that is, but I don't know how to do that. Like, I, I, I wish there was like this button I could just push and all of a sudden, like all my insecurities and fears could be gone and yet gone. We bring those things to the feet of Jesus and we have to keep bringing them and keep bringing them and keep bringing them and keep laying them down and reminding ourselves of truth, of who he is and what he has done. And when we see our hearts drifting away from not looking like and leading like and loving like Jesus, then we need to sit back with our king and we need to come before him with our nothing and say, here's my everything, because it's all yours. My joys, my sorrows, my struggles, and then I need to remind myself of the truth of who you are and what you've done for me. This is the posture of the Christian. It's to be at the feet of Jesus and to bring him everything. And so what does this king deserve from us? It's all of us. We say it around here this way, that what he deserves from us is full devotion. Not partial, not giving him our okay, but giving him our all, our best, and our hardships, and our struggles. That's what we see here. From this moment, Jesus will leave this dinner, and he will be ushered into Jerusalem, the city of God, and everything that he's doing in this next scene is declaring emphatically that he is the king of the world. And so what does this king declare over us? Verse 12. It says, now the next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, O daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. And so right here, Jesus, all these little movements, Jesus is doing what was culturally customary for kings to do in that day. So like today, if like the president came through our town, there would be a motorcade, there would be cars, typically black cars, with limousines with flags on it, there would be roads blocked off, there would be no doubt in our mind who's in that car. And right here, it's the same thing. When a king would come into a town, the first thing they would do is they would acquire an animal that represented them. You see, most kings would grab like a, a horse or an oxen to show this declaration of power. Jesus grabs a donkey as a symbol of peace. It's actually kind of funny. There's another passage in a different gospel in which we're actually told there's a bigger donkey available. 
And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That one's too big. Give me the small one. Like, give me the little one that's just learned how to walk. That's the donkey I want to be ushered in as king into God's people. That's what he's doing right here. And it's meant to show us what type of king he was gonna be. That he is someone who is coming both as the king of the world, yet a servant. Someone who is strong, yet humble. Someone who is powerful, yet peaceful. That's our king. As the kings would come in, the king's followers would begin to praise the identity of this king. And that's what we see his followers doing. That's why they declare Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. That wasn't an arbitrary statement. They're actually quoting Psalms 118 there. And Psalms 118 is a psalm that celebrates the steadfast love of God that he would enter into our story and bring salvation for us. That's why Hosanna is even said. Hosanna means God save us, rescue us. And so what they're declaring about Jesus as they see him coming in is they're declaring, God, would you save us? Why? Because of your steadfast love for us as you're ushering in the king of the world, the king of Israel into our lives. And the last thing the king would do as he was riding in on an animal, as his followers were praising him, the king would make a declaration of how he would lead. And that's why in verse 15, it says, fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Anytime you see a verse quoted in your Old Testament, go back and read the entire context of it. Because this right here is Zechariah 9.9. It's one of my favorite Old Testament quotes in the New Testament because Zechariah 9.9 is just this, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. But Zechariah 9.1 through 8 isn't talking about Jesus. It's talking about the kings of this world. And what's happening is the people of God in the center of God's civilization, which is Jerusalem, they're hearing about the kings of this world kind of bearing down on them. They're starting this military campaign, starting from the north and entering into the south, coming and bearing down on God's people. And they're hearing that in verse one and two and three and four and five and six and seven and eight, and then it stops. And as it all feels like everything is bearing down on them, all of a sudden, insert Jesus. And he declares, don't be afraid because you're my kid, but I want you to behold something. Your king is here and he's riding in on a donkey. He's on a mission of peace. And so City Bridge, I know it can often feel like the world is caving in on us. That it feels like just you turn on the news, you look at your own life, you look at your own situation and just kind of feel sometimes like just everything is kind of bearing down on you. And when you see Jesus as small, your problems will always feel big. When you see Jesus as weak or ineffective or indifferent, you will always try to just control your own life. And yet right here, Jesus is entering into our story and saying, you don't have to be afraid because you're my kid. But I do want you to do something. I want you to behold me. I want you to behold me because I am the king who's come and I'm not bringing punishment. I'm taking punishment upon myself because I want to give you peace, internal peace, 
but also peace between you and God. And so we see all of this. And what is this king declaring over us? That he is strong and he loves us. That's what this king is declaring over us. What does he deserve from us? Our full devotion. Because he's declaring a reality over us. He loves us and he's strong. And from there we see what this king does from us. What does this king do for us? It's interesting in 1 Samuel when God's people were crying out for a king, God warns them. And he says, hey, when a king comes, they're gonna take and they're gonna take and they're gonna take and they're gonna take and the heart of God is to give. And we see here Jesus coming as the true and rightful king and he will give all of himself. You see, after this moment, this crowd will gather around Jesus and it says in verse 27, it says, now is my soul troubled. And I love that Jesus is that open, he's that honest. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. And so, Father, glorify your name. I love that Jesus is open and honest. Hey, my soul is troubled. But even in this moment, God, would you glorify your name in my soul being troubled? And a voice came from heaven. The Father says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. I have glorified it in the way that you have lived your life. And I will glorify it again as you die and don't stay dead. It says that the crowd that stood there, they heard something that sounded like thunder and the others said, no, 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 an angel has spoken to him. But then Jesus answered, this voice came for your sake, not mine. It says, now is the judgment of the world now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And in verse 32, we see how Jesus is gonna do it. He says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was gonna die. You see that phrase there, to be lifted up, has two different connotations throughout our Bible. Sometimes it refers to a king that's highly lifted up and we see that king as glorious and amazing and, and powerful and the ruler of all things. And the other way is not about a king that's lifted up, but by a criminal who is nailed to a piece of wood. And what Jesus is doing here is masterful. He has declared with everything that he is saying and everything that he's doing that he is that king, but he's declaring, but I have left my throne. And I will be lifted up again to be glorious and, and to reign forever. But before I do that, I have another throne I'm sitting on. And it's called a cross. And I will have a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. This is what the entire gospel of John has been leading towards. This is what everything in all of creation has been leading towards. John 3, 14, as Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, this guy that should have known what God was gonna come to do and he didn't, Jesus said, so must the son of man be lifted up. Why? So that whatever, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 10, what Jeff taught a few weeks ago, he pointed out that five different times as Jesus is claiming that I am the good shepherd, he says the good shepherd does what? Lays down his life for his sheep. What does the king do for us? He lays down his life. Why? Because this is love. This is what love is. Love is always a sacrifice for the beloved's greatest good and there's no greater sacrifice 
than to sacrifice your very life. And we know this. We see this. We celebrate this. We pay money to go to movies and watch the same story play out over and over and over again, where a hero would lay down his life for those that he loves. And so you see it in Iron Man. So spoiler alert, that's on you at this point. But spoiler alert, Iron Man, at the end of Endgame, what does he do? He lays down his life by snapping his fingers. And he saves the world. William Wallace, even more on you at this point. But what does he do? He lays down his life for the cause of freedom. Even Bing Bong. Right? Bing bong, what does he do? He lays down his life, why? So a little girl can have joy again. Like I'm a grown man and I cried, not even watching this moment, but thinking about that moment, like three days after I saw it, I was just like, oh my gosh, bing bong. Just like, <laughs> I just need a moment. Like, why? <laughs> Because that's the story. That's the story of God. We see that and we celebrate that in our world in these stories, but we see that and we celebrate that when we see that in others. I was reading up about Medal of Honor winners this past week. And uh, there was one guy that really struck my attention. His name was Jason Dunham. Jason Dunham was an individual who when he was drafted into the war or went into the war in Iraq, he was a corporal, not a terribly high ranking individual, but he was leading his individuals into this battle. He heard in the middle of Iraq, this group of people were causing a fight. And so he led his men, not away from the fight, but towards it. And as he led his men into that fight, he literally gets into hand in hand combat with an enemy soldier. And that enemy soldier takes a grenade and pulls it and throws it at his men. And Jason, without hesitation, throws his body on that grenade. He lays down his life for the sake of those around him that he loves. And he died that day. And when the US Navy wanted to name their newest ship Typically names of ships go to presidents or states or important battles. They go, you know who we need to name this after? Jason Dunham. And so they introduced the USS Jason Dunham to memorialize what love is. And that is what our heart longs for someone who is strong enough to lead us into the battles of this life, but someone who loves us enough to lay down their life for us. And that's what we see with Jesus, that he is the ultimate picture of love. First John 4.10 says, you wanna know what love is? This is the definition. It's not that we love God, but that God has loved us and has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins to throw his body on the grenade of sin and death and take that for us. Michael Reeves, who wrote Delighting in the Trinity says this, he says, in the cross, we see a God who delights in giving himself. 
we see a God who delights to give all that he is so that you might become all you were meant to be. That's love. When you see Jesus for who he truly is, it changes who you are. And so what does this king do? He lays down his life by being lifted up upon a cross. And so we have a king who has declared that he is strong and that he loves us and he uses that strength and love to lay down his life for us. And so we're back to where we began. What does he, he then deserve from us? Well, once more, it's full devotion. It's full devotion. I was thinking about this yesterday in which Jesus gives all that he is. And if we're really meant to mimic Jesus, then ought we do the same? Ought we radiate back to him all that we are? You see, nine times in this chapter, the word belief comes up. If you've been with us, you know that 97 times throughout the Gospel of John, that word belief comes up and 42 times is the word life. And the implications are clear that when you believe in Jesus and not just this one time belief in Jesus, but when you keep pressing in to a greater and greater belief in Jesus, it pushes you forward into the life that God desires for you. And yet belief is not simply an act of the mind, it's a response of the will. And full devotion is, is a belief in Jesus but it's also a response to Jesus. And throughout the rest of this passage, that's what we see. Every time Jesus does something, there's a division amongst the people, but it always comes back to him. And so the first group of people, they don't believe in him and therefore there's no response in their life. It says in verse 37, it says, though, they had done, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Like he's doing so many signs and they're seeing that and he still, they still don't believe. And so if you've ever heard someone go, man, if I just saw a miracle, I'd believe. Don't be so sure. Because a lot of people saw that, but they were holding on to their own little king and their own little kingdoms and they didn't want to give that up to truly trust in the true king that was right in front of them, declaring with everything he is, everything he's doing, that he is the rightful king of the universe and of your world. They don't believe and so they don't respond. The next one is even scarier. They, some believe, but they actually don't respond. They believe with their lips, but they don't respond with their lives. It says in verse 42, nevertheless, many, even the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it. So they wouldn't be kicked out of their little synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They looked at Jesus for who he is and what he had done. And he was like, hey, I wanna trust and I'm gonna say it with my lips, but my life is gonna be far away from you. Why? Because I, I kind of want my little synagogue. I want my little comfort. I wanna hold on to that perfume and not give it over. I wanna hold on to that comfort, that prestige, that position, that entitlement that I get from man because I care more about that. And so when push comes to shove, they cave and they show their true cards. May it never be said of us. Because there's a last group that they'll believe, 
and they'll respond. And their life is never the same. Verse 44 says, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but the one who sent me, the father. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me doesn't have to walk in darkness anymore. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of life. When we behold Jesus for all that he is, we become who we were meant to be. And so if you're seeing in your life that you're not becoming who you know God is asking of you and pulling you into, then it comes back to that same question, who is your king? Who are you really orienting your life under? Because we have a king who has given us everything and the only proper response is to reflect that back to him, to give him our all. And the tragedy of not responding to Jesus isn't just a life change that you miss out on. It's that you miss out on Jesus. You miss out on him. And like we've been singing, he is glorious. And when we see him high and lifted up, shining in the light of his glory, we'd ask God, would you pour out your power and love as we sing back to you, holy, holy, holy. You are glorious, you are wonderful, you are more than we could comprehend. And a hundred words on a page aren't even a fraction of your beauty. When we truly believe in Jesus, you're just never the same. And we've seen that in the Gospel of John. And what I love about being a part of this community of believers is we've seen that here. Just think of some of the stories that we've shared over the last few weeks. We've seen individuals in this body, women who were marked by sexual sin in their past, now being marked by a sweet joy in their savior. We've seen people who had marriages that were falling out of control and they submit their lives to Jesus and he moves into that chaos and creates order. And now they're leading other people to have healthy, vibrant, life-giving marriages. We've seen people that radically needed someone to come over them and shepherd them through hard seasons of life. And now they are leading the charge and shepherding other people, mimicking their Jesus in the process. We have seen people who were selfish and suicidal, blinded by hurt and confusion, searching for life where it couldn't be found and now being marked by life where only it can't be found, which is Jesus. And so City Bridge, you have to wrestle with this reality. Changed people change. And so the question for you is, are you the same? As you look at the person of Jesus Christ, as you behold him, are you seeing in your life yourself becoming more and more loving, gracious, kind, gentle? Are you seeing self-control? Are you seeing gentleness and meekness? Are you seeing a life marked by Jesus? If you've been changed, then the most natural thing to do is to change, to transform, to look like your king. 
and you always become what you behold. So let's behold Jesus because the king has come. He has entered into our story and we have seen that he loves us and he's strong. And he has used that love and strength to lay down his life. And so believe in him. Respond to him and watch as your life is never the same. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.